Mark 10, and today we'll be in verses 32 through 34. So join me as we read God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of God, his holy, authoritative and inerrant word. May he bless what we've read. Let's, uh, as we usually do, stop and ask for help as we uh, study these three verses this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and before your throne through Jesus, our mediator. And we confess that we are not able on our own, in our own strength, with our own wisdom, uh, with our own intellect, to see clearly and hear clearly the truth of your word. Uh, May you quicken us anew and afresh today with your Holy Spirit, Uh, that he might give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth about your son Jesus. Savior, we pray that you would be among us, that you would speak to us through your word of truth today. Uh, Strengthen me as I preach this morning. Uh, Strengthen us as we listen. Uh, Lord, press the truth uh, into our hearts that we may walk out transformed by your powerful word. Savior, we pray all this in your precious name. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. And the question is this. Do you have a theology of glory or a theology of the cross? Those might be new terms uh, to you, new phrases Do you have a theology of glory or a theology of the cross? Martin Luther, who you might uh, remember, was a major figure in the Protestant Reformation. He's the one who originally coined those phrases. What did he mean by a theology of glory and a theology of the cross? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying things, it It's always a sunny day if you have a theology of glory. Um, Things are always looking up with that kind of view. Table Talk magazine described a theology of glory like this. A theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always to grow. If a theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. And if he experiences failure and weakness, if his church has problems, and if he's not healed, 
then he is often utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of his faith and sometimes questioning the very existence of God. You might recognize that the theology of glory is the theology of our American culture. Uh, Table Talk again says this, contemporary Americans are mad after the theology of glory, expecting success on the job, perfect families, and either self-help remedies or government action to solve all our problems. But that's not how Martin Luther saw things. Uh, when God chose to save us, he did not follow the way of glory. He did not come as a great hero king, defeating his enemies and establishing a mighty kingdom on earth. Rather, he came as a baby, laid in an animal trough, a man of sorrows with no place to lay his head, and he saved us by the weakness and shame of dying on a cross. And those who follow him will have crosses of their own. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, as Matthew 16.24 says. So again, what kind of theology do you have? A theology of glory or a theology of the cross? What do you expect from your Christian experience? The way of glory or the way of the cross? And which one of these does the Bible present as our normal Christian experience? My concern for us as a body is that above all, that our Christian experience is grounded in the truth of God's word. As you look around the landscape of American culture, of American church culture, I can see, and, and I think you probably can see too, that not much of what passes for Christian experience is grounded in the truth of the Bible. Much of what we see and hear from other churches that surround us, I'm not indicating all churches, uh, there are some excellent churches in this area, but there are many across North Georgia whose view of Christian experience is not grounded in the truth of God's word. And I'm concerned that your Christian experience be grounded in the truth of Scripture. So what is it for you? A theology of glory where everything's coming up roses? Or is it a theology of the cross? Which is it? Which way does the Bible teach? Uh, I bring us to this passage, and I believe our passage will answer that question. In our passage today, there are two principles. Uh, and these two principles um, will find out if we should expect a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. The first principle that we encounter in our passage today is that Jesus leads the way. Discipleship is always and ultimately about following Jesus. Now, that might sound good. Let me say it again and listen carefully. Discipleship is always 
and ultimately about following Jesus. I don't think that's true in many churches across our country. Jesus leads the way. Now, in this first principle, I want to point out three phrases to you that we'll find in verse 32. There are three phrases that I want to draw your attention to. The first phrase is on the road. Uh, Notice this phrase, on the road, as verse 32 begins. And they were on the road. Uh, That phrase, on the road, describes the whole middle section of Mark's gospel. Uh, The first time we saw those three words, or the Greek words that represent them, was back in in Mark 8.27. The middle section of Mark starts there and extends all the way through the end of the chapter that we're in right now. In fact, you can see the end if you look all the way down to verse 52 and the last sentence said, and and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This on the way not only describes Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem, and you'll see in chapter 11 that he finally arrives, Uh, it not only describes Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem, this middle section, this on-the-way section, uh, describes the path of discipleship. It shows us how a disciple should live. And i got to be honest with you, a lot of the stuff we've, we've handled in this middle section has been downright challenging. Uh, For me, and some of you have expressed the same thought, uh, that, wow, that's a mouthful. It is. Uh, But that's what discipleship is. So it's this middle section. Not only is about it his journey to Jerusalem, it's about on the way, on the road of discipleship. And, And here that... In this middle section, we'll see Jesus focus on his 12 disciples. His ministry is much more private. Now, before this middle part, it was very public, and he spent time with crowds. But here his, his uh, time and attention is focused on the 12, uh, and it's private instruction. We'll see that again this morning in these verses. So the first thing is to notice this phrase, on the road. It reminds us of where we are in the book of Mark, and it reminds us of what Jesus' purpose is with with his 12 disciples. Second, I want you to notice the words, up to Jerusalem, uh, as verse 32 continues. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. Uh, While this destination is no surprise to you and me, because we've read the end of this story, we know he winds up in Jerusalem where he's crucified, it's no surprise to you and me, this is actually the first time that he mentions to the twelve that that is where he's headed. This is the third time he talks about his death coming, but it's the very first time uh, where he tells the twelve he is headed toward Jerusalem. And up to Jerusalem doesn't mean that they were coming from the south. If we come from the south, headed north, we come up from Macon. Uh, we come down from Blue Ridge, Jasper. 
but up to Jerusalem doesn't mean uh, the, the direction on the compass. It means the direction in elevation. Uh, Jerusalem was about 3,500 feet higher uh, than Jericho. Now, Jesus and his disciples are not quite at Jericho. They're somewhere in here. But from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, the elevation rises 3,500 feet, uh, uh, give or take. Uh, in fact, no matter which direction you came from around here, you are always going up to Jerusalem. Uh, from any point of the compass. This is an important phrase uh, in the account. He is going up to Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples discover this for the first time. And then the third phrase I want you to see here is the phrase, walking ahead of them. Uh, Jesus was leading the way. Verse 32 goes on to say, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Very simply put, and I have to admit that as you read this in your Bible, at least in the ESV, it comes across as pretty bland. Uh, and uh, in reality, this phrase has more force to it than our English translations let on. It's not just that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus was leading them forward. Jesus was leading the way. Jesus was walking forward with resolve. He was leading the way with determination. Uh, he wasn't dragging his heels as many of you and I do when we have something big coming up and we find all kinds of reasons to sleep in. Uh, we, we stop to tinker uh, with things around the house, making us late for that appointment we dread. We drag our heels like crazy. Jesus is not dragging his heels one little bit as he heads towards his final showdown with the Sanhedrin. He walks with a sense of purpose, determined to get on with his father's purpose for him. Uh, Isaiah describes this as, as he is describing the Messiah, uh, quoting the Messiah, if you will. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says this, and listen for that determination, but the Lord God helps me, it's the Messiah speaking, which we know is Jesus, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Uh, my, my, I have a glare, I have a forward look, my face is like a rock, I will not be deterred from this. The ESV study Bible says about this verse, <coughs> the servant shows his sufferings willingly and he moves forward with resolute determination, confident in God's overruling help. Jesus describes this determination again uh, in John 10. Uh, here he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. Um, during a Monday night football game between the Chicago Bears and the New York Giants, one of the uh, announcers observed that uh, the running back at that time, Walter Payton, uh, the Bears running back, had accumulated over nine miles 
in career rushing yards. And the other announcer uh, chimed in, yeah, and that's with somebody knocking him down every 4.6 yards. Now, this is nothing compared to, a football game is nothing compared to this. It pales in significance. I only use it as an as a illustration. Christ is, of course, far more determined in his purpose than any NFL running back could possibly be. But it's this kind of determination. He will not be stopped. He's not just casually walking ahead of his disciples. He's leading the way with determination. So the uh, the third thing we encounter here is that Jesus walks ahead of them. So this is the first principle. Jesus leads the way. And as I said earlier, discipleship is always and ultimately about following Jesus. And we saw these three phrases in connection uh, with discipleship. So I want to ask you, pause and ask you, is this true of you? Does Jesus actually lead the way in your life? Many people might know where you attend church. People you work with, perhaps, neighbors. But would they describe you as someone who goes to this church or that church? Or would they describe you as someone who follows Jesus? Do people know you as a follower of Jesus, or do they know you by your favorite Christian speaker? Would they say, yes, I know him, he follows Jesus? Or would they say, yes, I know him, he loves John MacArthur, he loves John Piper, he loves R.C. Sproul or some other famous pastor? But let's remember and be reminded and perhaps to our shame, that discipleship is always and ultimately about following Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we can't literally walk down the road behind him like the 12, but we do have, get this, we have every word, every single word that he ever wanted us to hear. We have, many of you are holding it right now in your possession, every word that Jesus Christ wanted you to hear. It's called the Bible. Since we can't literally walk down the road behind him, we give our careful attention to the things that he said. We study and memorize and cherish his words. We share them with others. And because we can't literally follow him down the road, we follow his word and we make this truth uh, true of us or attempt to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, it's so, it has seeped in the, into the cracks of our lives so much so that we, it comes out when we talk to other people and it comes out through song. Uh, when we 
sing like we did this morning, a particularly fine set of songs, Matt. Um, I, my voice is scratchy because my, one of my favorite songs is um, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Great gospel song. I hope you were singing it with gusto. It is fantastic truth. Jesus leads the way. Is that true about you? Does he lead the way? Well, this is the first principle we encounter in these verses. Discipleship is always and ultimately about following Jesus. We see another principle, and that's that Jesus leads the way to the cross. Jesus leads the way to the cross. He does not lead us to the way of glory. He leads us the way of the cross. And again, let me point out three things to you uh, with this principle. The first thing I want to point out is the response from his disciples. They're shocked and they're afraid when they discover where their what their destination is. Uh, continuing on in verse 2, uh, it says there in the middle of verse 32, excuse me, 32, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Um, it seems that there are two groups of people following Jesus here. Uh, it's altogether one large group of disciples, but within this large group is a subset of the 12. Um, of course, they're disciples as well, but they make up a smaller group. It says in the next verse, Jesus pulls aside the 12 for private instruction. So there are two groups. Uh, each of these groups has its own response. Of the 12, it says, and they were amazed. Now, when I see that word, I think of something good and positive. Like there was an amazing sunset last night. Or I was amazed at the full moon two nights ago. I actually saw it first thing in the morning. It was stunning. It was huge. But this response from the disciples is not positive. It, would, it has a different connotation. It'd be better to say they were astonished. They were stupefied. They were shocked. And the root of this word means to leave someone immovable with shock or fright. And when the twelve realize where Jesus is taking them, they are not happy about it. They're shocked that Jesus would go there. This trip was incomprehensible to them. That's where the main opposition to Jesus was located. They had often sent people from Jerusalem up to Galilee to question Jesus. I think the disciples, the 12 apostles, uh, probably had that hollow feeling you get in the pit of your stomach that I get in the pit of my stomach when the pilot comes on the intercom and says, ladies and gentlemen, we've tried to route our way around a thunderstorm, but unfortunately we're still traveling through the edge of it and we expect a rough patch. So for the time being, you know how the spiel goes, please remain in your seats with your seat belts fastened. Attendants, please secure the cabin. And I hear those words and I'm thinking, what? 
Are we having things flying around the cabin uh, as we hit this turbulence? And I, I confess, I become very nervous and unpleased. I think for the, for the apostles, the 12, all this announcement, this knowledge that they're headed to Jerusalem would have just sucked the life out of them. They're stunned that Jesus was leading them to Jerusalem of all places. And then the second response comes from that larger group of disciples. Verse 32 again goes on to say, and those who followed were afraid. That's the larger group, remember. And when it becomes clear that their destination was, uh, was Jerusalem, the atmosphere among these travelers uh, becomes noticeably more tense. Traveling in the company of Jesus, after all, is risky. And they become frightened at what they might encounter on the road with him or arriving in the city. So this larger group is, is just frightened at, at the news that they're, of where they're headed. So we see, first of all, this response from the two groups, the disciples, the 12, and then the larger group uh, of his followers. We don't know how many, but um, several more we don't know. And from the response, we go on to see the risk involved, uh, particularly for the 12. They too will be exposed to risk because of their connection with Jesus. I'm going to begin at the very end of verse 32. I think we'll finally make it out of the verse. And taking the 12 again. So again, he's pulling them aside for private instruction. He began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Look at the first phrase again of verse 33. See, behold, we, we are going up to Jerusalem. Those were likely ominous and worrying words for the twelve. Because they were in this with him. Their destinies, their outcomes were tied to the destiny and outcome of Jesus. We. That might be one place where they weren't so crazy about being identified as we. One scholar says the use of we has sobering implications. Disciples face a moment of truth when they realize that their fate is enmeshed in Jesus' fate. The bell tolls not only for Jesus, but for them too. Jesus announced this to the twelve in the upper room uh, in John 15, 20. He said this, remember the, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And also Luke 21, uh, where it says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So here we see the answer to our question beginning to emerge. 
our question was, what can we expect from our Christian experience? Glory or a cross? Well, if they hated our Master and our Savior, it's unlikely that they'll take a liking to us as well. So the second thing we see is the risk associated, uh, the risk for the twelve because of their close connection with Jesus Christ. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the third thing we see in this record is the results. Of course, this is a prophecy that Jesus makes here. Uh, and we discover the results or the outcome of the way of the cross that he's taking. Uh, look at 33 once again, uh, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Uh, verse 33 uh, describes... Uh, describes his arrest and trial by the Jews. This is the Jewish phase of his crucifixion that he is announcing. He would be delivered over or betrayed to the chief priests and scribes by Judas. And then he would be tried and found guilty and condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. And finally, because the Jews were not allowed to execute their prisoners under the Romans he would be handed over a second time and placed in custody of Pilate and the Roman governor. So we see one result is his trial, his arrest and trial by the Jews. But then another result is his suffering and crucifixion at the hand of the Gentiles and deliver him over to the Gentiles, verse 34, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. That's an amazingly precise uh, description of what would happen to him. Uh, it is each of those four elements that we read in verse 34 is actually predicted of the Messiah in Old Testament scriptures. For example, uh, mocking him. Uh, is announced in Psalm 27. All who see me mock me. They can make mouths at me. They wag their heads. The next thing that he says, and spit on him, which is found in Isaiah 50. Uh, excuse me. Where did I leave, lose my second one? Okay, now it won't go back. Okay, and spit on him. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And then he mentions flogging, which is uh, described in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds or stripes, some versions say, we are healed. And finally, his execution. Uh, and kill him, he says. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's found in Isaiah 53, 8. All these are announced ahead of time. And all these are precisely what happens. Um, 
we're not told about the crucifixion uh, in this prophecy, but that is how they kill him, of course. And yet one more result. Uh, first, the, his arrest and, and condemnation by the Jews and his suffering and crucifixion by the Gentiles or Romans. And finally, his resurrection by God the Father. It says in that very last sentence of verse 34, and after three days, he will rise. Even this is announced in Isaiah's prophecy in 53.10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So thirdly, we find the way of the cross. Uh, uh, we find the result of going the way of the cross, rather. Um, this is the second principle we see. Jesus not only leads the way, Jesus leads the way to the cross. We see the response of the twelve, the risk involved from their association with Christ, and the results of the way of the cross. So back again, what should we expect if you name the name of Jesus Christ, what should we expect uh, our Christian experience to be like? The way of glory where you experience total success, find all the answers with all the battles and live happily ever after? That's what we would say, sign me up for that. I mean, does anyone not want that? Total success? finding all the answers, win all the battles, live happily ever after? That is the American dream. That is the theology of our culture. A theology of glory. Or is it the way of the cross where you experience opposition like Jesus did? Hatred from the world like Jesus did? And your own cross to carry? Which are you expecting and experiencing? These two principles show us which it is. The first principle is that Jesus leads the way. Discipleship is always and ultimately about following him, that we follow where he leads us. The second principle is that Jesus leads the way to the cross. Like the twelve, our fate is tied to his. If they hated him, they will also hate us. So our path is the path of the cross. Now I know this is not news to you, because I know that all of you that I'm looking at in some way have experienced the way of the cross. Is there any encouragement then for those who are on the way of the cross? Is there anything, any hope, anything that will sustain us? Well, yes, of course there is. We'll have our own crosses to bear, but we won't bear them alone. You will not carry your cross by yourself. 
The Puritan era in England produced many, many godly men. One of them was a pastor named Samuel Rutherford, who knew personally what it meant to travel the way of the cross. And uh, he was, by the English government, ejected from his church. And so for a time, as he lived in Aberdeen, Scotland, his primary ministry was writing letters to people. And this is one of those letters, an excerpt from a letter that he wrote to a woman whose daughter had just recently died. I think it is good advice for all of us. Listen to what he says. Know that the weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lies upon your strong Savior. For Isaiah says that in all your afflictions, he is afflicted. Isaiah 63.9 In all your afflictions, he is afflicted. O blessed second, and by second he means stand in. O blessed second, who suffers with you. And glad may your soul be, even to walk in the fiery furnace with one like the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. Courage up your heart. When you tire, he will bear both you and your burden. Yet a little while, and you will see the salvation of God. There is tremendous encouragement. We must know that we're not called to walk the way of glory. And I'm glad you're seeing this. And I hope that you uh, weave this into your way of thinking of what the Christian experience is like. It's not everything is coming up roses. There are those times where it is. But Jesus, like he led the twelve, leads us in the way of the cross. And I pray not only you you come to understand that about your Christian experience, because the Bible teaches that, but you also understand what I've just read to you, that the weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid on you lies upon your strong Savior. He is your second. He bears that burden with you. And so I encourage you, Courage up your heart. He bears it with you. Let me pray for us as we uh, close. Oh, blessed second. We do need to hear these words. Our culture has misled us into thinking what Christian experience should be like. Or maybe some pastor misled us into thinking what Christian experience should be like. Remind us, Lord, that following you, we follow the way of the cross. But also remind us that you go with us. And that... 
the heaviest end of the weight on our shoulders rests on yours as well. Strengthen us with your grace. Encourage our hearts as we bear the crosses you have given us, Father. And I do pray that through your indwelling spirit, you would grant us courage so that we could courage up our hearts as Rutherford uh, encourages us to do. Jesus, we plead for your grace and strength to do this. We ask these things in your name. Amen.